Hey, Bubblies, and welcome to a very special episode of this little old podcast, My Streaming Bubble. I'm your very special host, Jen, and what makes today's episode so special is that it's not actually my episode. I was a guest on Zoe's podcast, Backlick Cinema Podcast, which can be found on a podcast player near you, where he discusses the movies of yesteryear. He watches these movies with his son and then shares their thoughts on the podcast with some very amazing, insightful, funny, and just all-around wonderful guests. I may be a bit biased. But seriously, it's a great podcast, and it's so much fun to listen to uh, just someone else's take on some of these, like for me, a lot of movies from my childhood that I grew up with. His Con Air episode is really good, and I really, really enjoyed the Short Circuit episode. So I highly recommend checking out his podcast. Uh, You can find his podcast on just about any podcast player near you, and you can also follow him on social media. You can find his podcast on Twitter at Backlick Cinema, and you can find it on Facebook as the Backlick Cinema Podcast, or check out his website, BacklickCinema.com. But I had been invited to talk about the 1996 dark comedy film shining a light on the Midwest accent, Fargo. So today's episode is an episode swap, or more commonly referred to as a feed drop. Thank you, Zoe, for introducing me to this. I'm kind of excited about it. And real quick, if you're a podcaster and are interested in either a podcast crossover, an episode swap, or if you have a promo you want to share and have featured in the bubble, go ahead and send those to mystreamingbubble at gmail.com. So now, without further ado, please sit back and enjoy this very special episode from when Zoe was gracious enough to invite me to his podcast and discuss the movie Fargo. And be sure to follow his podcast wherever you get your podcast fix. Thanks for listening and keep streaming. Testing, testing, one, two, three. We're back, and we're glad that you're back. Join us as we take a look back on Backlick Cinema, the podcast. I'm your host, Zoe, that's Z-O or Z-O. If you're cinema fans overseas, cinema fans. You know what? I'm getting it out. I'm getting it out. I I can say the word cinema. It's the name of the podcast, Backlick Cinema, the podcast. It is the 87th episode. Thank you for downloading or streaming. We really appreciate it. We're going to talk about and take a look back at the movies of yesteryear which uh, we all loved from the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And if you would like to uh, help us out and spend a little bit of your support and time, if you like this show, then please help us out. You know, spread the words on social media. Uh, Tell your friends, your family, and your loved ones about Backlick Cinema, the podcast. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. You can find the details in the show notes. This is a special episode where I'm going to take a look back at a movie that I have never seen before. This this is something new. This is unprecedented. And I'm being guided on this journey by my very special guest that we have here today. Our next guest. Is, uh, hold on a second. Hold on. Bef- before, I, before I go on to talk about uh, our next guest, I, I have to acknowledge that the notes that I made regarding our next guest is in a different folder. It's like hiding somewhere else. And I was like, where did I put the notes on my next guest? And I have found it. So our next guest is excited about fantasy, drama, and comics. With her unique poise and gentle humor, she invites guests 
that she tolerates to talk about the things that she loves. Her show is fun. It's thoughtful. And if you're not listening to it, you should. I bring you the host of my streaming bubble, Jen. Jen, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. I'm super excited about this. And I appreciate the uh, intro that you had there for me. Unique poise, I think you said. Yeah, um, yeah. I like, I like that. Unique. <laughs> I'm very unique. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I am running out of adjectives. <laughs> and then my notes are all mixed up. It's like, oh, my God, where my notes go? And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll figure this out. I'm... Um, I can I can think on the fly. It's like when a a comedian when their joke when their joke doesn't land just as well as well, right? But they know how to mm-hmm. roll off the you know they they know how to uh they know they know how to um recover from that. Yes. You know? <laughs> it's yes. like don't worry, I got this. I got more jokes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, how how are you doing right now? I'm doing very well. Uh, it's it's a little on the early side for me, but that's okay. I've got my coffee and I'm here. I made it. I was on time for class. So, and I'm just, I'm really excited to to be here today and to talk about this movie. And I love that uh, you haven't seen it before. So this is kind of exciting. So. Yes. Yay! And I'm excited to talk to you about it. I'm glad you decided to show up for the show. I'm glad that you accepted the invitation. And I was like, oh, yes, I got one. So, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I love listening to your podcast. You're such a fun person to listen to. And I feel like you like a lot of the same things I like. Uh, your last episode was, uh, or the last episode I listened to was uh, the one where you guys were basically comparing all of the Jokers from DC Comics as far yeah. as the, the the actors who played them, your favorite portrayals. That that was a pretty neat episode. Oh, thank you. Those are a lot of fun to do. I've been really enjoying kind of we uh, my my tolerables, Laura and Eric, were kind of going through a bunch of the DC characters. And so that's been a lot of fun. And it just as someone who didn't grow up reading comics, it just kind of gives me a greater appreciation for these characters and kind of where they originated on paper. And then how that has translated and reached that larger audience from screen. So it's it's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the the Joker episode. I didn't enjoy the Joker movies so much, but <laughs> I had a lot of fun talking about it, though. <laughs> yeah, so. for me, the the Joker movie was okay, except for the fact that it did not feel like it was in reference to the Joker. Like when you guess it. If it wasn't called the Joker, then would as many people see it? And I'm like, no, no, of course not. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. they they just used the name in order to garner an audience. It's like, oh, people are like, oh, this is a superhero movie. So let me go and watch it. And I guess you could say, I mean, yeah, it it could be, but at the same time, it's like it it doesn't it could have been anything, right? <laughs> it could have been exactly. any movie. And a lot of uh professional critics they say it was more of a um through it would it derived a lot from earlier movies. Uh, I think one of them was called The Comedian and then, or something like that. And then there was another show, I guess Taxi Driver, that it said oh, it was yeah, a derivative yeah. from. So I'm like, well, I haven't seen any of those movies, but yeah, I, I can see what their point is, right? <laughs> yep, yep. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's a very well-made movie. I just didn't like how they were trying to connect the mental illness to essentially the Joker. And I was like, 
I, that's just not my personal preference. I just like I just kind of like the idea of just someone completely unhinged, <laughs> right? Well, and not unhinged because of mental illness or anything like that. So I, I can understand. Yeah. yeah, I can understand how people would feel that way. But um, traditionally, the, the Joker is criminally insane. Like he doesn't go to regular jail. He goes to Arkham Asylum. He is like mm. a, a judge has looked at him as like we we understand that you are not responsible for your crimes. So yeah. <laughs> we're going to put you. In a mental institution so that you can get help. And unfortunately, that place is Arkham Asylum. So mm-hmm. the Joker's traditionally a crazy person, um, insane, um, mentally ill, or however, whatever makes people feel comfortable. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> some people's like, I don't want you to say crazy anymore. I was like, oh, I, I'm running out of words, people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the Joker... Is is not right in the head, and and he does very bad things. I, I don't, there but you go. I think what the joke, what what the movie is trying to do, it's not trying to say that he is doing bad things because of his mental illness. It, it's because of the 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 side societal pressures that are around him, and it, it's just that um, the mental illness does not make it easy for him to deal with those pressures, and the system that's supposed to assist him with his mental illness has failed to help him because this is around the 1970s and early 80s. And I think in, or maybe it is the early 80s. And in the 80s, when Ronald Reagan was president, he basically shut down a, a lot of mental institutions by withdrawing government support, right? So now what mm-hmm. are you supposed to do with these people who have mental problems and they need help? A lot of them end up on the street, right? So yeah. it's like, and and they're, most of them are harmless. It's just that the Joker's not one of those people, right? Right, <laughs> right. Not- exactly. <laughs> he's not a harmless person i remember i was listening to uh there was a batman tape that i listened to that when i was younger and i listened to this tape over and over again like and i was surprised because i actually heard it in one of eminem's album he used a, a snippet of that audio so um it was uh batman who was suggesting that maybe the joker could use a frontal lobotomy and i'm like well batman is extreme <laughs> Batman, <laughs> and I noticed. I just noticed your Batman hat, which is very cool. Oh, thank you. I, I, like ju- I just picked it up the uh, the other day. Is the newest one in my collection. Uh, very nice. I was like, I wasn't going to buy it, but I was like, but it's a new bat symbol. Come on, yeah, you gotta have it. <laughs> so, um, let, let me ask you some totally mm-hmm. obvious questions so that uh, our, our audience can get to know you better. Uh, my audience knows that I am not the uh, the grand interviewer. This is not. Um, this is not. What's that one with the act? The actor studio. This is not. It's not that. Oh, this is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going we're for the totally obvious question. So my first obvious question is: um, So, what were your other ideas for podcasts? Uh to oh, for like my show, I I didn't have any other ideas. It just all kind of came up in conversation at work one day. I was actually talking with my boss and it kind of got on the subject and he's like, well, what would you do if you didn't have to come into work right now? Because I was really, really hating my job at the time. <laughs> and my, my boss was amazing. And so we were just kind of talking about it one day and I was like, oh, I don't know. I think I'm maybe start a podcast. And He's like, oh, well, what would it be about? And I'm like, well, since I'm always getting in trouble for talking about my shows at work, I guess that's, <laughs> that's what we would base the show off of. And from there, um, kind of I talked to another buddy of mine who had been kind of into podcasts for a while. And I think he had already was starting his 
uh, like golf based podcast. So talking with him and kind of bouncing around some ideas and just kind of he's like, well, what would you call it then if that's what you would want to do your podcast about? And I was like, and it just kind of because I have always said, like, when the kids are in bed and it's my time, nice and quiet in the house to watch TV, that's when I'm in my streaming bubble because it's just me, my streaming services, no commercials because I will pay to not have commercials. Dang it. And uh, and that and it just kind of snowballed all from there. So I was like, yeah, you know, I talk about the shows that I love with people I tolerate, which is how I've always referred to my friends. <laughs> that's that's pretty awesome. I, I love that. That was one of the things that attracted me to your show is that, uh, yeah, because there are some people I just tolerate too. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that point about like paying for services so that you don't have to receive commercials, I, I feel you. I mean, even though we, we run ads on this show, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because um, I ended up when you two started getting gnarly with their ads, it's like you're watching a show and all of a sudden it just breaks in the ads. It's like, well, I guess I'm I guess I'm paying for this now. Well, actually, yep. um, I was in I was going to end up paying for it anyway, because at the time they had Google Music or Google Play Music, which is far superior than YouTube Music. And I hate the fact that they took it away from me. But <laughs> so they had YouTube Music and and that subscription included um, it included uh, YouTube. So. I had no problem with that. And then they switched over. So you're playing for YouTube, which includes YouTube music. So I was going to end up paying for it anyway, because I had to pay for one of these music services because I was spending like 20 or $30 a week on new albums. I was like, for, I mean, not a week, but a month. So it's like if I'm already spending $15 a month or $30 a month on albums, I might as well. Because I was resisting it for a long time. And I was like, well, I might as well pay for a streaming service. So I don't have to buy any more albums. So since yep. then, I, I've curtailed my album purchases uh quite a lot <laughs> now you just get the ones that you really 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 need either those or the ones that for some reason don't appear on streaming services or th oh, that yeah. were taken off of, like especially there are some old albums there where there's a rights issue and they they've mm -hmm. taken those albums off of the streaming services like oh well that's messed up <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. um what was the other thing? Oh, Paramount Plus is another one that I'm paying for because uh, you can get that one for free. But uh, I got tired of watching commercials like during and then when like Strange New Worlds came out, I was like, well, that's it for me. And it was weird mm -hmm. watching Star Trek without commercials, but I got used to it real quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Paramount Plus is one we don't have yet. So because we'll end up I'll have to sign up for AMC Plus so I can. Try and finish The Walking Dead. Stay current on that because I'm gonna I'm gonna see that thing through to the end. I want to watch it die. Right. Um, and I say that with all the love in the world because I've been watching this show since like day one. I've got a bunch of Walking Dead stuff. Um, but so when we're done with Walking Dead on AMC, then I think I'll sign up for the Paramount Plus because I haven't seen any of the new Star Treks yet. Right. And like and any of them from Picard to Lower Decks or Strange New Worlds and we watch a lot of Next Generation on Pluto, Pluto because they just have a Next Gen channel. So that's on like almost constantly. And I love it. But when you watch it as much as we do, <laughs> we, we see episodes repeating throughout the week. And so I'm just kind of like, I'd rather be able to just pick which ones I want, start in a season or something and work my way through. So that's kind of the plan for now. But I've got a 
I, I can't sign up for all of them all at once. So right, as right. much as I'd want to. Right. So I'm trying to limit myself and be a responsible adult. <laughs> well, I'm 90% sure that Paramount has a it has a free tier. It's just that you have to deal with the commercials. So if you don't mind the commercials, you can kind of get started early on, on the Star Trek journey. And I guess you've been warned about, uh, you know, Discovery. And you've probably been warned about Picard. Probably not going to have the same love for it. You're going to see some changes that you're not... Yeah, that you might that might not be um you might not find aesthetically pleasing. But uh it's they're they're okay. I I like them okay. for what they were. And then Discovery in particular gets a lot better in the late when it's it does a time shift, so it gets a lot better after the time shift. Okay. And, and then um they they do some things with Spock. Um I guess you know, like the general story about Spock and Discovery. I don't know. Okay, I won't. I don't think so. so I but well, it's not really a spoiler because they they this oh. is part of the story. Um, so basically, the main character Michael Burnham is uh, Spock's secret sister. Mm. So um, the funny and she's not a natural sister; somebody that Sarah and his mother had adopted. So the thing okay. about this is, uh, Spock has a lot of secret siblings, and I'm just waiting for him to come out with a secret son. So when he do Spock's right. secret son or secret daughter, it could be either one <laughs> secret non-binary. I, I'm all for right. it. So, um, so you're familiar with Star Trek two, obviously no Star Trek three. A bit. I've only been just like a next gen gal and just the series never really got too into the movies. So I always feel weird to say that I'm a Star Trek fan because I only really like next generation. And I, will tolerate Voyager because when we first cut cable, it was one of the few things on that I could actually sit and watch. So I became very familiar with those characters and everything, but that's really kind of it. I didn't get into anything else. I do like the newer Star Trek movies with the very handsome Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto and John Cho and everybody. Um, those were a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed that, but I that that's that's kind of it for my... Truckiness. <laughs> well, that's that's a it's a lot of truck out there. Nobody. It's a lot of truck. No, it, it would be criminal to, uh, especially since you're a younger person. It would be criminal to require you to watch all of Trek because there's so much out of uh, of it. I mean, it's Enterprise. There's the original series. There's Deep Space Nine. It's, it's a lot, and, mm. and then all this new Trek is more Trek than we had in decades, right? I know. <laughs> so, um, uh, as far as the movies, like the older movies, uh, you can skip Star Trek one, even though they just did a remaster. Uh, you can skip Star Trek the motion picture. I mean, unless you're really into like slow sludge crawling type of narrative. <laughs> um, if you liked uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, then you will be able to enjoy Star Trek the motion picture. Um, but you can skip it. You don't really need it. Uh, Star Trek two is like required viewing for all Trekkies. It, you, kind of have to watch that to uh certify your trekkiness and then uh, star trek 3 you'll find out you you will you will see what i'm talking about when i say spock's secret son when you watch star trek 3 um okay. star trek 3 is a direct sequel to star trek 2 and it's it's good it's it's not like uh they say like the odd number treks are the worst treks but in this case star trek 3 i feel it's not doesn't really fall into that. So you and Star Trek three is like a sequel to Star Trek two. So that that's pretty fun to watch. And then Star Trek four is one of the best in the series. And you can skip Star Trek five. Don't do it. And then Star Trek six, <laughs> the undercover, the undiscovered country. That's another one of the best Star Trek movies. Yeah, Star Trek five was directed by William Shatner, and 
he doesn't know what he's doing. I don't think he's directed <laughs> anything since. Like, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're not, you're not built for this, son. Yeah, so. Uh, right on. Well, maybe we'll do like a mini uh, Star Trek-a-thon this afternoon. We got a sick little one. He's on the mend, but he's still very, it's, he's a very energetic kid. So when he's sick, you can tell. So he's still kind of just camping out on the couch. Maybe we'll make him watch Star Trek this afternoon. Yeah, Star Trek 2 <laughs> is something that you'll love. As a matter of fact, uh, you'll see Ricardo Montalban. Uh, that's his real chest. I want you to know that. Oh, that's right. By the way, yes. that's his actual chest. He's just <laughs> he's just a fit man. And yeah. People are jealous. Uh, so <laughs> moving on to the next question. Uh, did, you, did you accidentally invite guests that you couldn't quite tolerate? I no, I have not, at least not as of yet. I am I get very kind of like shy and nervous when trying to reach out to like strangers. So it's only it it just started with just close friends that were comfortable with wanting to be on the podcast. Um, my little brother, he's out in Portland, so it's kind of a nice way for us to sit and like visit and you know, chit chat and all that fun sibling stuff. Um so I haven't really done a lot of, I guess, recruitment in any way. But if, if a, like I've had other podcasts reach out to me, which is awesome. So then I try to return the favor and then invite them to be on uh, my podcast. And so far, everything has worked out. So I haven't really had any uh, any kind of issues or regrets or anything like that or struggled to tolerate anybody right. <laughs> as of yet. No. <laughs> So. I I spent some time as an Uber driver, and you spend a lot of time tolerating. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I've done a lot of customer service, so I feel right. like that's where my like strength and tolerating people comes right. from. Right, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, um, are, are there any uh, shows or movies that you do just for yourself that you don't share with anybody, or are you just are you sharing everything? At first, there were just kind of like my shows or maybe the shows my husband and I watch with no plans to do an episode or anything like that. Uh, but there's been a few that I have since watched. And that's kind of in this last year, I've kind of started doing mini bubbles, minisodes. So where it's just me. And I've, I did one on the series on the season finale series finale for Killing Eve because it just pissed me off and I was really <laughs> mad about it. <laughs> So I had to I had to rant about that one for a bit. And I realized that those were just kind of fun. They go pretty fast or, you know, since it's just me and I can edit as I go. I was like, oh, I kind of like this process. So I've started incorporating more minisodes and I've had but nothing really where it's specific to a show. I'll talk about maybe a handful of shows that I have watched that uh, I don't have plans to cover as a full episode. But just because it's covered on a mini-sode, I'm open to going more in-depth with a guest for a full episode if anyone's ever interested. So I've got a couple where, yeah, it's just, oh, I've been watching this and these are kind of my quick thoughts about it and maybe cover a couple of shows that way in a, and try to keep it still under an hour. Okay. So, now, speaking yeah. of doing episodes, have you, um, did you talk about your mini-shows and the shows that you watch? And I know you like comments, so tell me that you've been watching She-Hulk. I have. Yes, we haven't watched. I watched the first episode with my oldest and I loved it. And I I was kind of watching him and he's smiling and laughing throughout. So it's just a really fun watch. I think it's something that if your kids are Marvel fans, they can totally get into it as well. 
We haven't watched the second episode yet, but I'm hoping to maybe get that in this afternoon. But that was one where I thought maybe I'll just do like a Minnesota and cover each episode as the season goes on because it's I'm I was I was really into it. Like when I watched the trailer, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, Marvel, She-Hulk didn't know a lot about like the backstory of the character or anything. But I'm like, yeah, it looks good. I'll watch it. Watch the first episode. And I was like. Oh my, I'm just so much more pumped for the rest of the season now. So it was, it was a strong, solid start. The haters can die hating. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, I see all these dumb memes about it and everything. And then because I'm, I, I'm, uh, uh, masochistic and I'll go in and I'll read the comments, but there's still a lot of support for the show within the comment comments. Right. Right. So I'm like. Is this a situation where it's just a very small, like uh, a minority of very loud people that just can't let it go? Because I feel like maybe that's what it is. And But either way, it's a great show. I've been totally digging it. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. A small minority of people. Because She-Hawk has been a popular character in comics for a very long time. And they're specifically drawing from some of her most popular stories. So I don't I don't get what the hatred is. It's just... I, it's like wow, the 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 uh the what do you call it? The patriarchy is real, mm-hmm. and it's it's like it whenever it rears its ugly head, it gets hard. And it's like She Hawk, the show is leaning hard into fem- feminism, and then in the second show in particular, she says this one line that is particularly um uh it it leans hard on the struggles of trying to be a woman in in a male dominated world and then i'm like well yeah yeah there are a lot of people that's gonna love that (laughs) Mm -hmm. so you're you're really gonna like the second episode with with the comics uh are you reading comics now you haven't read them when you were growing up but what about now i have since with with a lot of these shows that i watch that are based on comics i've gone back and have started reading several of them so i've read all of the umbrella academy I've read several of the boys and I got up to just about hero chasm. So within the books, uh, let's see. I read, I read the first book for Miss Marvel after watching the series. And so just based on the, the first book compared to the series, I thought they did a very, very good job. Uh, let's see. I started reading paper girls. And so I want to finish, I want to try and read a few of the books before I start that show because that show looks really, really good. And the first book was really, really good. And I kind of like what they're giving us so far there. Uh, let's see. What else have I read? Uh, let's see. I picked up. Um, I think that's more or less it. It's just kind of here and there, whatever stuff. If I'm like, oh, yes, I like this. Oh, I did read some of the Sandman books. And then I listened to the audio book on audible with that full cast with james mcavoy and everyone oh it's so good and i did that before i watched the show and the show is amazing i think the show does such a great job just kind of bringing that world on paper to life and um the tom i can't remember his last name who was cast as dream he's just he's dream he is the endless he he just I don't know how Neil did it. He made that character come to life and he created this whole ass person and named him Tom (laughs) so he could star in his show, uh, The Sandman. So, so yeah, so I've some here and there. My son, my oldest son has been reading comics kind of here and there, like a lot of the Sonic stuff. Uh, He's into, he's reading 
Attack on Titan. So he's gotten into the to the mangas right now, and he's watching Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. So I'm like, well, maybe when you're done with the show, you'll start reading those books too. So even though I didn't grow up reading comics, I'm trying to make sure my kids know that like you read whatever you want. They have access, you know, digital libraries and everything. So we're trying to make sure that they that it's just all brought in and, and embraced. So I've been trying to so I read a few as I go along. I'm kind of more of a I'll watch it first and then maybe I'll read it. So I'm kind of the the reverse of <laughs> most folks, but I feel like that kind of keeps me from maybe becoming one of those people that's like, oh, this is what they changed and I don't like it. Right, right, right. <laughs> I don't want that to happen. So I'm like, we'll just do the reverse. But well, yeah, so I've I've enjoyed them. Here's what I want to suggest. Um it's a comic that uh, I'm starting to re I'm rereading from because I don't remember where I left off, but I'm re I'm starting. It's like, you know how you start to read something and you hadn't read it in a while. So you like back up a couple of chapters <laughs> to, mm-hmm. and start yep. reading again. So that that's the rereading that I'm doing to, so I can get to the part that I hadn't reached yet. So uh, let me suggest a book called saga. Uh, I think, I guess you're, uh, are you using like comiXology or something like that? Um, just local library. Oh, okay. You could probably find it in the library. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's, it's kind of hard. It, it's fantasy. It's like space fantasy. It's like, so it's like with, um, there aren't any elves or, or dragons or anything like that, but there are characters that are akin to elves and stuff. So, but they're all aliens. So if you can imagine like, uh, a fantasy, but in outer space, that's what this book um, is is about. And so it's basically a Romeo and Juliet story that these two um, characters whose species are at war with each other, they fall in love and they have a child and, and they're hunted because they are not supposed to be together. So the governments of their species are hunting them down. So at least that is the part of the book where I'm at. So um, okay, I think well, that, that sounds interesting. I think that you will enjoy it immensely. <laughs> it, it's called Saga S A G A. I forgot who wrote it, but yeah, you should. The artwork is amazing there, and um, and the story is it's just engrossing, right? It's you get in and and you don't want to leave. So yeah, go oh, check perfect. that out. <laughs> yeah, right on. I wrote it down, so I'll remember cuz right. if I don't write it down. Right. If you don't write it down, it's it's Then what? It's Happened. in the wind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um thank you for for doing this interview with me. Um mm-hmm. I I just want to I don't I don't know what podcast you're listening to, but there's a podcast I'm listening to uh called The Made for TV Movie Podcast. I'm going to play uh, a clip for them now. So uh, I want my audience to hear Made for TV Movie Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Beth. And I'm Kirsten. And we are the hosts of the Made for TV Movie Club podcast. Beth, we've been friends for a long time. We sure have, Case, since before Rachel kissed Ross for the first time. It's true. And since we share a love of all things TV, we decided to team up to review our favorite TV movies from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. You don't need to watch the movie. We did that for you. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Deezer, and iHeartRadio. And find us on our socials. Join us in our Facebook group, Made for TV Movie Club Podcast. 
follow us on Insta at made underscore four underscore TV underscore movie underscore club. Tweet us at TV movie club pod one. Or give us a Google at hashtag TV podcast and you'll find us. We'll see you soon in the clubhouse. And we're back. Thank you for joining us. Oh, just in case there, there was a, a problem with the audio. So in case you didn't hear at the very end, they were saying that you can give them a goog at pound sign MFTV MC podcast, and you can find them on Google that way. So welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. And we're about to check out a movie that I now know why is considered one of the best movies in the game. And that movie is Fargo. Jen, please tell us a little bit about Fargo. Okay. This is where I start reading, right? Yeah, this is it. Okay. You're on. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure you can cut Lights, that. Lights, camera, if action. Like, you can... <laughs> 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 it's early for me. Okay, no. All right. So a Minnesota car salesman, Jerry Lundegaard's inept crime falls apart due to his and his henchmen's bungling and the persistent police work of the quite pregnant Marge Gunderson. Yeah, and that's from IMDb. And I, I, I was like, well, that's that's short. Because I didn't know how to write this. And sometimes uh, I'll write it myself. And then sometimes I just, you know, what what does IMDb say about this? And I was like, wow, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. If I can't come up with something clever and witty, I'll just pull from IMDb because it's just, yep, it's. Yeah, right yeah, it's right there. Right to the point. It's, yep. it's an excellent resource. So this movie was released on April 5th, 1996, produced by Polygram Filmed Entertainment and Working Title Films. It grossed over $24 million in the U.S. and Canada and $60 million worldwide on a $7 million budget to rave reviews. This is one of the best movies that I've talked about on the podcast so far. (laughs) This movie is just universally loved. So um, who... Tell us who started, who's starring in this movie. Well, we have the brilliant William H. Macy playing Jerry Lundergaard. And folks might remember him from a a whole bunch of stuff, but like maybe Magnolia, Boogie Nights, Cellular, or The Last Dragon. Yes, The Last Dragon is one of his first appearances. It's kind of a blink and you'll miss it moment. But even in there, even in that tiny scrap of film that you see him in, you you can look at him and say, this guy's a genius. Mm He really is. One of the movies that I always like to include movies that I've actually actually seen actors in, because I, I haven't seen Magnolia, but I, I did forget that he was in um the, what's that superhero movie called? The uh, Nope, I forgot. It's a superhero movie that he's in, and he's hilarious. He plays a character called The Shoveler, because he carries- <gasps> Mystery Men. Yes, Mystery, Mystery Men. With Mystery Ben Man. Stiller? Yes, with Ben yes. Stiller. <laughs> Janine Garofalo, that movie is yeah. hilarious. <laughs> I love that movie. He says, uh, I shovel and I shovel well, right there. <laughs> he takes that role so seriously. It's amazing. And then in his movie, he's like a totally different person. And I was like, oh my God, he's like transformed. But it's like- it's almost like you're cheating when you can do different accents, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the next actor is Frances McDermott. She plays Marge Gunderson. She was in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Almost Famous, and 
Deck. I thought I put something else. But yeah, those those are two of the movies that she's in. And um she was fascinating in this movie. <laughs> she she Yeah, she is. Kind of reminded me of Columbo. A little bit. Yes. A little bit, yeah. yeah. I could see that. Yeah. She she didn't actually like say, let me ask you one more question, but she she got that look on her face. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, she did. <laughs> Uh, let's see. There's also the brilliant Steve Buscemi uh, plays Carl Showalter, and he's been in Ghost World, Reservoir Dogs, Armageddon, just to name a few of, I'm sure, his very uh, impressive uh, IMDb filmography. Right. I love him. He's one of my favorites. Right. He's He, he kind of, he tends to play like the smart, smart aleck uh, type of character, right? Ex- mm-hmm. Except in... Um, Armageddon, where he played a total... No, was it, no, not Armageddon. There was a different one, I'm trying to think. No, it was... Um, it was the one with Nicolas Cage, uh, Con Air. Mm-hmm. Total Creep. Total Creep is over. Oh, Total Creep, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So... Oh. And I love that movie. And I listened to your Con Air episode, so it's oh, funny that you awesome. brought that one up. And I listened to your Short Circuit episode as well. And both amazing. And didn't mean to interrupt. No, that's fine. That's fine. Th- <laughs> thanks for listening. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so, uh, up next is... Peter, oh, I, I did not, I did not practice this pronunciation, so I'm, I'm going to give it a go. Peter Stormeyer, uh, he played. Oh, and this is even a worse name because I, I didn't quite get the name when they mentioned it on the, on the movie. Uh, but I think it's Gare, Grinswald, Grinswald. Does that sound right to you? <laughs> I think so. I tried to pick up on it through when I did my rewatch. And even with like the closed captioning, I think they only ever identified him by his last name. Right, uh, right. Yeah. So I never got the actual pronunciation of the first name. So I was like, well, I'm just going to call him the Big Swede. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Gare Grimsrund, and he's been in the the Brothers Grimm and Constantine. And you know what? There are some times when I'm watching a movie and I recognize a guy. So I recognized him. I didn't know his name, but I recognized him and it bothered me. And it bothered and it was to the point where I had a hard time enjoying the film because like I need to know who that guy is. Who is that guy? And mm-hmm. and finally uh you know after the movie was over I I remembered that he's he was in American Gods. Did you see that one? I don't th- no, I have not seen that one yet. So American Gods is another uh, is a novel written by Neil Gaiman, who also wrote The Sandman. So in this one, um, he's basically the gods are alive there in America. I highly recommend it, especially the audiobook. So in there, um, so the ancient gods, they their life requires people to worship them. So they get weaker as as people uh, worship them less. So somebody like Jesus Christ, he's like he's he's massive, like he's a massive figure in in the supernatural community but somebody like odin or thor they're they're small and they're weak and i they're trying to bring about an age when people worship the gods again so they can gain more power so um peter plays uh cinebog uh as i think it's a it's a it's a god from like the um uh like the caucasian region that that um middle eastern um mm-hmm. region and basically he's kind of the god of death I don't... <laughs> the, the 
people don't really know that much about how, how he was worshipped, but uh, yeah, he he's pretty gnarly in in American Gods. <laughs> right on. Yeah, he's definitely one of those. Oh, it's that guy. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I, I kind of had the same thing, and I had to look him up right away because I'm like, this is gonna bother me, and then I'm like, yep, classic yeah. of that guy. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, we also have. Um, Kidoki. Uh Kristen Rudrud. I'm so Sounds sorry. Good to me. <laughs> and she plays Jean Lundergaard, and she has been in movies like Drop Dead Gorgeous, Pleasantville, I love that movie, and Herman USA. Yeah, she she was definitely a weird a weird one in this movie. <laughs> she yeah. Was, she she like aggressively chopped up vegetables, right? <laughs> <laughs> So up next is Harv, oh, I got a good one, Harv Presno, and he played Wade Gustafson. He's been in Paint Your Wagon, Saving Private Ryan, and The Unsinkable Molly Brown. And we also have Tony Denman, who played Scotty Lundegaard, and he's been in movies like Sorority Boys, Go, and Madhouse Mecca. Up next is Steve Reeves. Uh, he played Shep Proudfoot. He's been in The Longest Yard, The Missing, and Dances with Wolves. And then we also have the amazing John Carroll Lynch, who played Norm Gunderson. And he's been in things like The Founder, Gothica, Paul. And he's also been in a lot of the seasons of The American Horror Story, which I have discussed at length on um, guesting on another podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, we have Steve Park, who played Mike Yanagat. Oh, hold on, I got it. I got it. I can. I can do this. I can read. It's only. <laughs> it's only consonants and vowels, right? Yep. <laughs> Yanagita. He played Mike Yanagita, and he's been in Falling Down, The French Dispatch, and Do the Right Thing. And even though he's a smaller character, like you have to go deep into IMDb to find uh, his name and uh, the character he played. But I had to put him on this list because. He had one of the most impactful scenes in the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the most like memorable. For... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, for oh, just a conversation right, scene. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, tell us about uh, who directed the movie. Well, this movie has been directed by Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen, uncredited. So, is Ethan uncredited yeah. on this one? Ethan okay. is uncredited. Gotcha. That's kind of odd to me because you know. I don't know. We well, all know the Cohen brothers. Well, the thing is, is that it's odd because if you're brothers, you can have co-directed credits. Like there are very specific rules in Hollywood on who can uh, direct and co-director. So they only allow one director unless you're, I guess, husband and wife. But I've never seen a husband, husband and wife team or if you're brothers. So that's why you have the Wachowski siblings. And that's why you have uh, they could have had shared director credit, but they didn't. Interesting. Didn't know that. Yeah. Fun facts. Uh, but they have directed other brilliant movies like No Country for Old Men, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which is one of my personal top favorites, and The Big Lebowski, another classic most folks love. I still need to see The Big Lebowski. I've seen many of their films, but I haven't seen that one. And a funny thing about it is like, I come out of movies like No Country for Old Men, not fully understanding the movie, yet still enjoying it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's because the acting in that movie is so impactful. They know how to choose their actors, and the acting yes. just kind of hits you over the head. 
And then there was another one. I don't think they directed it. It was um, who was the one where uh Daniel Day Lewis and he was an oil man. Uh, there will be blood. Yeah, there will be blood. That feels like a Cohen movie, but I don't think they it did does. that. One. Yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> think so either. But yeah, that was. And I watched those two movies around the same time, and I'm kind of one of those where I felt like the titles should have been switched. Right. <laughs> but both were very, very good. Absolutely. So this movie was written by Joe and Joe Cohen and Ethan Cohen, the aforementioned Cohen brothers. They've written a lot of uh, great movies together. So. They've also written uh, Miller's Crossing, Raising Arizona, and Barton Fink. I haven't, I've heard people talk about Barton Fink. I actually haven't seen any of these, but I've heard people talk about Barton Fink a lot. And so I was like, well, maybe I had, I need to check that one out. <laughs> the only one off of that list right there is that I've seen is Raising Arizona because it's Nicolas Cage. And it's one of my favorite movies. It was one of my dad's favorite movies. And so I still have a copy on DVD. And uh, it, I love it. I it's one of the my top Nick flicks of all time. <laughs> Nick flicks, I like that. Nick flicks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I it I feel like everybody's seen Raising Arizona except me. It's probably one of his best movies. Um, it's probably something that he got Oscar nominated for. But I uh, I don't think so because I think it was really only uh, Leaving Las Vegas is the one he's only ever been. Maybe he won. Yeah, he won for that one. Yeah, I don't know that he's been. I can't think. I'm just going to stop talking since I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) It's always a good choice. (laughs) (laughs) But he should have been if he wasn't. Right, right, right. So what's the music like? So the music is by Carter Burwell, who's done. uh, He's got he's done Carol, True Grit, Hail Caesar. Uh, 112 credits to his name, so very. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I don't. I guess I don't. I unfortunately don't pay a whole heck of a lot to music per se, but it's I, not to diminish that its importance to the storytelling at all. But yeah, I usually don't pick up on uh, music producers' names or anything like that. So that's a good right, bit of right. info to have. Right. It was. It was. The music was good. It wasn't distracting. I didn't really notice it in this viewing, but full disclosure, I was super tired when I watched this movie. I watched it last night and um, and I made the mistake of uh, playing video games before I watched the movie. And I was like, oh my God, it's super late and I forgot I need to watch this movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I watched the movie uh, Dead Tired. So I didn't really notice the uh, the, the the music, but it wasn't it wasn't bad or distracting. It was right. it was fairly good. And these composers tend to have like hundreds of movies to their name. They work on so many projects, and a lot of the projects they work on they're they're uncredited. So um, he's he's doing good work, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. If he's if he keeps getting work, he must be doing good work. Exactly. Usually, you don't really notice the music unless you're doing something like uh, uh, a huge adventure movie like a Star Wars or Indiana Jones, something that you can, you know, hum along with as you watch the movie, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. That's when yep. you really notice it. But in this one, it was just part of the background, just designed to draw you in and not take your attention off of what was going on. Yep, absolutely. And that's, it. yeah, did all those things. All right. So that's it for the opening credits. And if you're enjoying the show, remember that you can get T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, face masks, jerseys, and more at our website, backlickcinema.com slash shop. 
Autumn is coming up, so if you're in need of some new gear for the school season or for the fall, then you can check it out. And so upcoming next, we're going to talk about our favorite parts. And we're back. We're going to talk about our favorite parts of the movie. And like I said, I really enjoyed this movie. I I wasn't able to take a whole lot of notes because most of the things that I like about the movie is just the just how the people were acting. Just just the acting in the movie was all my favorite part because they all feel so strange. And at the same time, they're all so normal, right? It was, yeah. like, <laughs> it was like hyper normal people just doing, okay, I'm going to uh, fix breakfast and I'm going to go up and see this murder up here. So uh, you sure you don't want, you sure you don't want to eat breakfast? I'm like, no, I don't need to eat breakfast. Like you need you need to eat breakfast. I'm like, all right, I'll have some eggs. And um, and then she goes out, she comes back and I need a jump, right? Yep. <laughs> it's just so <laughs> regular, right? <laughs> it was supposed to be a comedy. It was more like just, uh, what if regular people were doing regular jobs? Because <laughs> it's like, exactly when you're watching movies, everything is uh, hyper, uh, it was stylized for our entertainment, right? Nobody stutters, nobody makes mistakes, nobody chips and falls as they're walking. This is like totally on purpose. Um, but here, it, it's like, it feels super ordinary. And and that's one of the things that I really appreciated. It was like, yeah, I, I feel like I'm being seen. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what were some of your favorite parts? Oh, my God. All of it. I love this movie. And I'm really glad that we got to cover it for your podcast because I haven't watched this movie in years. And so when I was kind of doing my research, well, first of all, I checked it out from the library because I... I I do get a little, because we pay for a lot of streaming services, I get a little cheap when it comes to streaming rentals. And so since I'm like, I'm already paying enough to the streaming gods, I'm not going to pay another $4. So I checked it out from the library. (laughs) Um, It cuts into my shopping habit. No. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I checked it out from the library, and then I was down in the uh, pod basement down here one day, just kind of dinking around. I looked up on my DVD shelf, and there it was. And I was like, oh, I forgot I own it. So right. I was like, so it's been that long. And I forgot that this movie was came out in 1996. And so even watching it, I was like, this still doesn't feel like 1996. This could still be Minnesota today. It could be anywhere in the Midwest today. Right, right. Well, there are some things. Um, I'm pretty sure that... Most people would have cell phones, and what, right, yeah. Have some, no, I didn't see one cell phone in no. a whole movie, and the cars would be newer, like that. Uh, True, me, if it were but today, it's also, but you it's also like see, small town Midwest, so right. it's not out of the. I'm I'm surprised at the lack of trucks. Yeah, <laughs> as yeah. someone living in small town right. Midwest, there's a lot more trucks than that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, but, and yeah, you would see more trucks, and there would be at least one Tesla. Yeah, at least. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So I some of my top favorite scenes are, so after they have kidnapped the wife, Jean, and they get her up to the lake house, and she gets out of the car, and she tries to run away, but she's got the bag on her yeah. head, and she can't go anywhere. She just looks like a distressed chicken. Yeah. <laughs> it cracks me up every single time, and then... 
uh, Steve Buscemi's characters just standing there laughing at it, just watching it all happen. And it's like, there are terrible things that happen in this movie, but it is so funny. Right. <laughs> and in a different comedy, they would have chased after her. But right. in this movie, they were they just let her run. It's like, where's she going to go? Where's she going? She yep. doesn't know where she's at. She's got a bag over her head. Her hands are tied behind her back. And she's running around in the snow in almost no clothing. Right. Yep. <laughs> and she's yep. running around in the night clothes that we kidnapped her in. So yep. <laughs> she's not. <laughs> They did just looked at her. <laughs> but I just, I love just the whole, the way the actress kind of like moves her body and in the way that she moves her head again, like I said, it just kind of looks like a distressed chicken. And right. so she, I, that's definitely one of my favorite, favorite moments. My other one that just had me laughing the entire time is when the one like deputy goes to talk to the one guy who's like out supposed to be shoveling his driveway, but he's actually sweeping it because everything's like melting or whatever. So that's just kind of funny in of itself. Uh, Cause I've swept to the driveway as well. <laughs> um, but the way he is talking about, you know, that funny looking fella and he keeps talking about up at the lake there and, you know, and, and that whole exchange and, and the way that ends, and he's like, and I was telling my wife about it, and she said, oh, you better call it in. So I called it in. <laughs> and it just, and that's his, the end of his story. And I was like, that is the most Midwest storytelling. <laughs> right, I've right, ever right. Heard. It was that. So, and it was like, yeah. And, and he, oh, because the funny looking guy kept asking him about the ladies. Like, well, this ain't yep. that kind of establishment, mister. <laughs> yep. Like, just a little bit too much information about their whole exchange. And it's very, it feels very Midwest. I know I've done it. I have family members where I'm just like, they're talking and I'm like, oh my God, get to the point. Right. I don't need to know what Joe Bob said <laughs> when you saw him at the local grocery store. <laughs> right. So that's definitely one of my my favorite, definitely one of my favorite scenes. And then I really, this time around, I just had a greater appreciation for those scenes with Marge and Norm. Because it's so, like you said, normal. And it's almost like boring, but like in a very, very sweet way. Like this is their life, but they are, and there's not a lot of conversation between the two of them. And that's Okay. Because they're still there for each other. He still brings her lunch. She's supportive of his of his painting and his artwork and everything, getting on the three cent stamps and how important the three cent stamps are to people. Right. I loved it <laughs> so much. They, right. Those two did such a great job of just kind of being your Midwest married couple. <laughs> right. Well, not only that, but it's like you mentioned how they didn't talk much to each other and they didn't have to because that's an indication that they've been together for such a long time. It's like when you're together for a long time it's not a lot of conversation like you know you go to work you come home you know they go to work and they come home and, and you basically know what they did and you kind of try to have a little bit of a conversation about how your day went and then you just sit and watch television right mm -hmm. <laughs> absolutely and when they're at the buffet having lunch like they're the couple that sits next to each other right that right. is so cute because <laughs> then she's like she does not want to sit next to mike right she, and then she's right. like well i don't want to have to keep turning my head to right talk to right you. Which was the very like classic kind of Midwest nice right. passive aggression there, and which is another thing I just kind of love throughout this whole movie is right. the, the Midwest nice with that dash of passive aggression that right. <laughs> is the cousin to Midwest nice. Right, right. Yeah, she was uh, super nice. It was amazing how nice she was about getting him away from her. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Because he Absolutely. was getting entirely, he was putting his armor on her and whatnot, and he seemed kind of desperate. So I was like, "Oh yeah, it's you sit over there." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna pick those as like my top three. But I I just I love Norm as the husband. The license plate joke was hilarious. I mean, this whole movie is just like you said. There's a reason why this is held up on such a high high pedestal right, in the movie right. world. So yeah, um, one of them. One of my uh, the the moments that struck me hard was the after the kidnapping and the driving in the snow, and uh, they got that the the encounter of the police officer was one thing, and then they kill like well actually it's just Greer, Gar Gar kills the police officer right because <laughs> the police officer mm-hmm. is, is asking too many questions, and he had the opportunity, and so now they're trying to drag the body of the police. He could have helped <laughs> if he had helped drag the police officer they would have gotten out of the way like real quick and he's bigger anyway but yep. he's just so he's just so over it at the point yeah. kind of <laughs> in his life where he just he's just not there anymore he just let's just get the money and go type of dude so he has I, I guess he feels like well i'm the one who did the murder so you can do the cleanup I, that's how he feels so um so um his partner Carl is struggling with his body, this dead police body is bigger than he is. And then they get caught by that passersby. So, you know, Gar gets right into action, gets in the car. He gets in the driver's seat, does a U-turn, go chases him down. And that, that would, the whole thing when they, when the other car and the, the, the driver and the passenger from the other car, when they see what's going on and they, they are looking each other in the eye. I'm like, Oh my God, that's not going to end well. <laughs> it's like, it, mm-hmm. it's uh it's it's just haunting, right? And yeah. then when he catches up to him and he just coldly murders him. And like super cold, right? Just, oh, yeah. It, uh, almost like it's just like he was taking out the uh, garbage or he was shopping for groceries. It's basically, it was just a chore to him. Mm-hmm. And that... Uh, the, that people like that are among us is is really creepy, right? Yes. 100%, <laughs> absolutely. Super impactful. So how did you feel about the accent? Did, did they get to you after a while? Because some of it was super harsh. <laughs> well, I am. I have lived my entire life in the Midwest. So I grew up in Iowa. I now live in Wisconsin. So I am very familiar with the uh, with the accent from these here parts, you know. So I thought they did a really good job with the accents, you know, and, and really nailing that Wisconsin. Oh, no, not Wisconsin. I'm sorry. That Minnesota nice. With the oh yeahs and don't you knows and and everything, so I I just I get such a kick out of it, and I love that they worked really hard to try and get the accent down uh, as as well as they did. Yes, they so, did. And there's just kind of something that's maybe maybe because of the association of Midwest nice to that kind of Minnesota Minnesotan accent, where it seems. Like it's so unassuming, right? You know, yeah, you got all these yanos, and and you know, even with Jerry's character, you kind of get the sense that he's just kind of bungling, he's kind of a fool, and you don't really kind of pick up on that he might have a touch of psychopathy in him because of all his oh yeahs and don't yanos, and just kind of that nice guy sound or the, you know the nice cop sound with Marge. So I thought that's a very interesting choice to set this movie to set the story 
in a place that's got such a very specific like dialect accent to it. Right. That like, like I said, I associate it with just that Midwest nice. So you don't, you know, cause you've got your crime movies and you know, they might have like an East coast accent or a Southern accent or something. So you don't really see those types of characters on screen with the, you knows and, and oh my gosh. And <laughs> oh yeah, you don't say. <laughs> right, right, right. I loved it. I thought they did a great job. I'm glad you could authenticate the accent. I actually, <laughs> I actually shot a message to uh, before the podcast started. I asked, uh, I sent a message on Twitter to um, to uh, well, we just did an ad for made for TV podcast. So um, the hosts on that show, I think they're from Minnesota, and they do have a noticeable uh, Midwestern accent. So I, I, I asked them. Um, if that that accent was real, but or if it sounded authentic <laughs> to them, but uh, I, you know, I sent it late so that they, they wouldn't be able to answer um like, like right away. But I'm I'm still curious. I'll find out after the show. But you're from the Midwest, so you, to you, it sounded real. Oh yeah! Oh, oh yeah! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> See, there you go. There you go again. And it's like growing up in Iowa, Iowa has, it's a bit different. It's not so much of a pronounced with the oh yas, but there's a touch of that in there. So when I first moved to Wisconsin, there was all these little things. Like, first of all, Wisconsin, as a normal person would pronounce it, is actually pronounced Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) Here in Wisconsin. Right. And And then after I moved here, a friend of mine told me, uh, that he could tell that I was not a lifelong Wisconsinite because of how I pronounced Milwaukee. I pronounce the L in Milwaukee because there's a freaking L in, in the word. Right. And he's like, nope, lifelong Wisconsinites pronounce it Milwaukee. So I am very <laughs> hyper aware of how anyone pronounces his name. Right. And I, it, it throws, it's so fascinating because it's true. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> So, yeah, I, I love it. And these little difference. So, yeah, when I first moved to Wisconsin, it I, I kind of chuckled at everybody. But I've been here like uh, like 20 years. Yeah, and it grows on you. <laughs> it grows on you. And it kind of just gets in there and you, you don't realize that you're doing it until you go home and someone calls <laughs> you out on it. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, speaking of Jerry, uh, he he had some extremely creepy moments. So one of the moments I remember was when he was rehearsing how he was going to tell, uh, I, well, I guess he was calling his father-in-law yes, to yep. tell, to tell his father-in-law about the murder and how he's rehearsing his grief before he talked to him. I was like, Oh my God, this dude is horrible. He can't even manufacture real grief. This is his wife. who's <laughs> in real danger and mm-hmm. he's working on pretending to be grieving. I was like, at least he's practicing, but I was like, Oh my God, it's so hard. <laughs> and it's like, you wouldn't, you, uh, well, actually I know why he called his father-in-law because he's pretending that he's been contacted by the kidnappers and that they don't want police involvement. So naturally his father-in-law has the money to, to free her. So that was uh, his whole performance is crazy. Like you said, he, because of his accent, because of his mannerisms and his, uh, you know, his jerky movements and his stutter and his doodling, he he comes off as being un, unassuming. Like, no, I'm not a criminal at all, but he's kind of a slime ball. It's like the way he sells his cars, trying to upcharge the um, the 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 prospect buyers, or how he's trying to uh, uh, just throw people off as to like. There's this thing with the. 
the person, I guess, who I who's auditing auditing the cars. I didn't fully understand that part, but um the guy kept calling about the VIN numbers for the cars because he gave a couple of cars away to the criminals who were supposed to be committing this crime. So <laughs> So they're trying to, I, I guess it's the auditor. He's trying to find these cars. Like, yeah, I'm going to send you the VIN number right over. And he's, but it's like his facades after a while, it starts to break down. It's, it's like, mm-hmm. it's working less, right? <laughs> yes. You can see the cracks forming because it's not a very structurally sound. Right, right, right. He's like, well, I can't read it because you faxed it. It's like, well, you're going to have to, well, I'll send somebody over. It's like, okay. And then he kept saying, yeah, I'm going to fax it. He's like, no, you can't fax it to me. <laughs> Because you can't read the facts, you have to send somebody over with a copy. I'm, a, you know, I'm going to call my attorney on, on all this kind of things. And I guess it's like, uh, like he would owe one hundred and thirty thousand dollars or something like that. So it's he's, he. It seemed like he had a whole bunch of cricket stuff going on simultaneously. Oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah, they don't go into too much specifics as to why he needs this money and why he has manufactured this whole plot to have his wife kidnapped and then get the get the ransom from his father-in-law but through these conversations with the guy on the other end you get the sense that yeah it's some sort of like just theft embezzlement you know yeah lying about vin numbers that don't actually you know for vehicles that don't actually exist because at one point the guy's like oh yeah i just want to make sure these cars exist you know and and jerry right away is like oh no they're they're they exist they're real and you're just kind of like why would you need to clarify that right, right. if you're innocent? So that's and it's funny because I've never really truly picked up on the specifics of what Jerry got himself into because it's while it's the the reason why he's he goes down this path, it's the path and the story that's being told and right. not so much how we got there. But so that's that's what I was able to pick up on my on my rewatch. So I'm like, okay, so it's some sort of yeah, just theft embezzlement just kind of your basic (laughs) crimes or whatever so i was just like it it clearly isn't important because everything just goes to crap like immediately afterwards (laughs) and that's where the entertainment is (laughs) i think what i what i picked up on i think the embezzlement was part of him trying to gain get money for the deal so he wanted money from his father to buy this land for a parking lot that was the, the whole impetus of him getting the money that's why when his father-in-law was serious about giving him money, or at least he got the impression that his father-in-law was going to give him money for the parking lot. Then he tried to go and contact the kidnappers to tell them that they did not have to kidnap his wife anymore. Cause now he got the money from his father-in-law that he felt that he couldn't ask for. Now he realized, Oh, all I had to do was ask. So now he's going back. And then later on, his father-in-law and his business partner kind of double crosses him on a deal. It's like, no, we're going to give you a finder's fee for this property. We're going to buy it for our own use and we'll just give you a little bit of money. And it's like, no, I need, I need more. But then it, it feels like he still needs more money. So mm-hmm. <laughs> for something else. So we don't exactly know everything that he's entangled in. Right. And I kind of got the sense that the whole, whole line about uh, needing the money for the parking lot that he gave to his father and uh, his father's business partner was all a bunch of crap because 
was just whatever line business deal proposal he could come up with to present to them in order to get the money. Because once they kind of were like, well, we'll go in, we'll pay you the finder's fee. You know, we thought this was an investment deal. And Jerry starts to get visibly befuddled. And he's like, no, no, I need the money. This is for me. And they're just like, you're going to cut us out of this deal. No dice. We're going to go ahead and, and go in on it. So just from that exchange alone made me feel like that the business proposal Jerry set for to his dad or his father-in-law was all crap and was just that. uh, So I don't think there was a lot. So I don't, but who knows? Because like we said, they don't really go into detail as to what all Jerry got entangled in, but you get the sense that it's a, it's a naughty mess. Right. Right. Well, I think they found a lot because his business partner looked up, his business partner looked over and said, Oh, this is a good deal. What's your finance? So they found the property that he wanted to buy, but maybe okay. he never intended to buy it. Right. He just, right, needed, yeah. he wanted the money for something else. And he never intended to buy the property. We, we don't, Jerry was good super point. slimy. We, we don't slimy. know <laughs> what he was involved in, but William H. Macy, you basically carried that well, but um, yeah, it, it was that. And then it was uh, his whole, like trying to make everything like it was normal after his, uh, his wife was kidnapped and he uh, tried to like his uh, tried to reassure his son about that everything was going to be okay. He's just super creepy in, in all, all of the things that he was doing. Well, and then it's like he doesn't even think about his kid throughout any of this, because at one point, one of the guys, uh, Wade's business partner, Stan, I think, uh, was like, oh, and what about Scotty? Then all of a sudden you see it on Jerry's face. Oh, crap. I have a kid. (laughs) Right, 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 right. (laughs) And then with the way the movie ends and Jerry goes on the run and everything, it's like, where is Scotty? Who'd you leave Scotty (laughs) with? Holy crap. (laughs) Yeah. At that point, he's only concerned about himself. Mm hmm. So I, I really enjoyed the movie. Like at the end of the movie that you had uh you had um Marge basically tracking down the criminals and she she knows she's looking for a car, she finds the car she's looking for, and then she runs into uh Gar and <laughs> putting a body in a wood chipper. That was just uh oh crazy just mad crazy. And then like the it was like a slice of life moment where she's trying to tell him, like, police, you know, put your hands up or whatever. But he can't hear her because he's right by the wood chipper, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that part, too. It cracks right. me up where she's like, police, police. Right, right. It's like, honey, you see the wood chipper, you hear the wood chipper. Right, right. So the, the only part that I kind of bumped up against is that she, she kind of, she shot him in the back as he was running away. And I was like, well, you know, that that wouldn't play well today, right? Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can kind of understand. Like, it would have played better. Like, if they shot her today, then he would have started moving towards her or he would have shot or she would have shot him as soon as he threw the, the wood, the piece of wood, right? Because right. he almost hit her. So in that, mm-hmm. it was like you're reflexive, you would shoot the dude. And that would make sense. But not, not when he's running away, right? At that right, point, yeah. he's like, well. He's wearing this, that, and the other, and he's and he went in that direction. And she knew she had backup coming, but the, like shooting him in the back, that was that was kind of harsh. Yeah, from today's standard, right? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. But, no, I I I agree. I was kind of feeling that too when I was watching it. I was like, right, was like, right. Well, but within the context of this movie, nineteen ninety six. I mean, this guy has done terror. He's just feeding his partner <laughs> to a wood chipper, right? Um, but no, I I agree. 
And it's just kind of interesting because it makes you, I was reading, I think on IMDb about how Marge would have had to been like a really amazing shot to, to be able to hit him in the leg from that distance. Cause he got pretty far. Yeah. Yeah. With that distance leg. with the pistol, she wasn't aiming for his leg. She was right. Right. For... She didn't, she wasn't <laughs> aiming. That's what she hit, but right. Right. Uh... That was because the first shot missed and, and that's what they, uh, teach and when, whenever you're you're in a job where you're dealing with firearms and you you are called upon to shoot people, they always tell you to aim for the center of the body because that's the part of the body that's moving the least. Right? You're not mm-hmm. trained to shoot somebody in the head or in the in the legs. You're, you're trained to shoot them in the in the center part. They call it the center mass because that's the part that's doing the least amount of movement. So she was mm-hmm. she was most likely aiming for his back and it ended up in his leg. And she kind of yep. lucked out that she didn't kill him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we get we get the justice in the in the sense that she gets she she catches him. She takes him, takes him in. And, you know, you fingers crossed. Everything everything works out. Right. As right. It should right, be, right. As right, it right, should. right. 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 <laughs> So, but yeah, I just couldn't help but think like, oh yeah, that's a Midwest girl for you. She can hit her target from the shoreline. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it was, and I couldn't help but wonder too how the big Swede, like, yeah, he's out there with the wood chipper and everything, but you still don't have any other kind of weapon on you. You know what I mean? It's like this ruthless, very cold unhinged kind of character when you're feeding people to a wood chipper. I'm sorry I keep laughing about that. Uh, you're so, supposed to laugh so about silly. that. I know. You're, that's what it was for. <laughs> Is that, That's yeah. why they call it a dark comedy. Yes. That, that was a funny moment. And he's struggling with that too because yes. wood chipper is not meant to you like cut up bones and flesh. It's meant to cut up wood, right? So it can do it, but it's not. That's what not what it's designed for. So yeah, he's struggling with shoving the rest of his partner's leg into the wood chipper when he gets caught, <laughs> and it's just painting the forest with his partner's blood. Like, was he going to do anything with that blood? He could have just as easily chopped up the body and like hit it somewhere that's what most people do what was and the body was already chopped up so half of the work was done what was the point of like feeding it to whichever it takes it's labor intensive it takes up too much time it's very noisy right very Very noisy noisy. i know you're in the middle of nowhere but it was i guess that's why he felt like he could do that because he was in the middle of nowhere and the i what what, did he think that the snow would eventually cover up all the blood that he was spewing into the forest uh, or the backyard Uh, i you know i don't know uh, just, I just don't think that that character has a lot of forethought. It's no. very much like a in the moment kind of I need to take care of this situation. Right. I need to shoot the cop and these passerbyers and now I need to feed my former partner into a wood chipper. All these things make sense too. N- not only that, but he kills the hostage. It's yes. like <laughs> cuz she start- yes, and that yeah. was the other thing too. So yeah, he, that one uh Big Swede is definitely the, you know, he's he's obviously like the bad guy. He's the unhinged one, the one that has no problem doing these terrible things. He's the obvious bad guy. But I, I don't know. Jerry's kind of up there with him because of that unassuming nature. So it's interesting how we just have a group of baddies right, and Marge. Right. Right. <laughs> she goes so. up against all of them. Um, actually, I think that... Uh, Steve Steve's character was probably the most dangerous one even because he also because he has the forethought he does the planning and then he is able to act 
when it becomes necessary. Like he he doesn't hesitate to kill people. Like he didn't hesitate to kill the father-in-law. He doesn't hesitate hesitate to kill the uh the the guard at the the parking lot booth. He's already annoyed with people who don't let him out of a parking garage. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the second time that happens is like he uh he doesn't hesitate to kill that person. But um yeah, he was pretty gnarly too and then he had to mm-hmm. challenge he, he had to challenge Gar because uh, because Gar wanted to keep more money. Oh, a- another thing. There's almost a million dollars. Well, let's say they, they, they only took like $80,000. So there's almost a million dollars buried somewhere in the field. I don't know why he I think he was going to come back to get it later. I think so. Too. That's the only I, thing that makes sense. He was going to come yeah. back and get it later and then leave town. And he, I don't think he had any intention of, of paying the dude. Right. So he, he, he just puts like a car scraper in the middle of nowhere. And that's supposed to tell him like, what if it snows? Like if it snows, exactly. you're never going to find that car scraper. If it, uh, uh, anything could happen. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's never exactly. going to find that money again. Somebody will find it, but you know, he's dead. It doesn't matter. But that, that right. kind of struck me as like, this is, this seems like a really dumb decision. Like he, you could have did something else. Everything struck me as doing something else instead of burying yeah. it in a field in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> well, even like off a highway like that, there are mile markers. So, yes. you know, and it's like you couldn't have like gone a few feet and found the mile marker. A mile marker, <laughs> a sign. Anything. Uh, uh, you know, a st- not really a store. You don't want it too much where people are traveling. But, yeah, something like that. A road sign, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> County Highway A or something. Right, right. He's the worst pirate ever. <laughs> yeah, bi- pirates bury their treasure, and he's the worst pirate ever. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. Did, did, were there any other favorite parts that you wanted to go over? Oh, man. I mean, I, I also had written down um, when Jerry's walking around rehearsing his call to Wade, because that was, it, it just, it kind of, it struck it just made me kind of chuckle but then it's also like that kind of terrifying like here he is practicing and he can't get it right he doesn't know he can't get himself to sound genuine in any in, in any way even though yeah he's the one that put this all together so i feel like his his mastermind skills are definitely not up to par i think uh, i think <laughs> all of us all of us normal people would struggle with what exactly is the right kind of grief when you're when you suspect that your partner has been kidnapped, like he he was trying to muster, like he didn't want to do do too much because she's not dead, right? He doesn't think that she's dead, so not too much, but not so soft that he doesn't care. So he was right. he was trying to find the right tone, I think. Yeah, <laughs> well, and especially with his father in law who already kind of hates him, you know, it's like you don't want to oversell it, but you can't undersell it <laughs> right. because this man is going to pick it apart regardless. So I just I did think that was really interesting. And, oh, let's see what else. I mean, when when Marge is interviewing the two girls at the bar and just that whole very Minnesotan, oh, yeah, back and forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's that's why this movie is set in Minnesota. That, that, when, I love that's ex- it. Exactly what they were going for when they did this. Yeah, I love it. Um, and then the one other thing, too, is, you know, so Marge is pregnant and so she's like always eating. And I can appreciate a character that is eating, especially on screen and stuff. But, you know, Norm brings her lunch from Arby's and she's mowing it down. And I just chuckled to myself because when I was pregnant with my first child, I ate 
so much Arby's. Right. Like all the Arby's. There's just <laughs> something about that weird roast beef. I couldn't, and the curly fries could not get enough of it. So that part just kind of made me chuckle. And then she stops at Hardy's and gets a, a breakfast sandwich. And I, Hardy's has really good breakfast sandwich. So I, <laughs> I was like relatable. Right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, let's see. I mean, yeah, Frances McDormand as Marge is just amazing. I think she also comes across as kind of unassuming again with the oh yeahs and don't you knows. But the second that she's challenged either by Jerry or she's on put in an uncomfortable situation like by Mike, you can see she's able to turn it on. So she is a very, very competent police chief because she's the chief. She's not just a deputy or anything like that. So she is the woman in charge. And I love that. And the way that she first, they first come up to the scene uh, from the police shooting and the, and the bystanders or the passerbyers and the way that she's able to just also quickly kind of put it together. Cause you kind of always get the sense in movies and shows that, Oh, small town cops, they're just kind of like your, uh, uh, Oh crap. What was that? I had like a really old TV show I was going to throw out as a reference, and now I can't think of it. Like, um, uh, not Barney Miller. Do, do, uh, Barney Fife? Oh, Bar I know. Yeah, Andy Griffin. Andy Griffin. Thank yeah. you. Sorry. Um, but yeah, so you kind of get this like, but so she kind of, I like how she, in a way, like kind of squashes that that trope of small town cops that don't really know anything, and especially being a woman and a pregnant woman and a chief. And she just freaking kills it. She does. And she's clearly knows what she's doing. She's clearly earned her spot as the chief because of the way she so quickly puts it all together. And even when she's talking to her partner or whatever, when they're driving back and she's like, oh, I don't know. I got a something about like his police work wasn't quite up to par. The way she so nicely was like, you're wrong. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, what happened was they was looking, at, he was talking about the license plate. He's like, all I got yes. was, all he wrote down was DLP. And uh, she was like, I don't think your police work is up there. Um, yep, that's it. Uh, DLP, dealer's license plates. DLR, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah, so I just, oh, she did such a great job. Frances McDormand is She's a gift. She also does the voice of God in the Good Omens uh, television series, so yeah, I, I think it's appropriate. I meant to watch that. I I still had. I watched the first episode like months ago, and I haven't finished watching the series. <laughs> oh, it's I I I can't recommend it enough. I love it. David Tennant and Michael Sheen; those two are just adorable together. So, right. but yeah, Frances McDormand is. I love her so much. I think she does such a great job in this role for just something. For kind of like a, a a normal person, like a normal character. Right, right. So love it. She did it. She did it. All right. So let us take a break right here. And then when you hear us up next, we will be talking about the trivia. All right, we're back with some fresh and ripe trivia from IMDb, the source of a lot of knowledge, not the source of all knowledge, mind you, just, just a gobsmacking amount of knowledge. So just to get us started off, we talk about Joe Cohen had Francis McDormand and John Carroll Lynch 
conceive of a backstory for their characters to get the feel for them, they decided that Norm and Marge met while they were working on the police force. And when they were, when they got married, they chose that one of them had to quit. Since Marge was the better officer, Norm quit and took a painting. Isn't that sweet? I love that so much. And I, I kind of wonder if that helps make their characters feel so real in that boring, <laughs> <laughs> sweet married life. So I love it. And also, nineteen, yeah, 1996, Norm is the stay-at-home husband, stay-at-home partner. He gets up to make eggs for her because she needs to have eggs. She needs to have a breakfast. And I... I, I just kind of loved that little bit of representation in 1996 of seeing the male being the stay at home right. and kind of admitting that, you know, when we you when we read this bit of trivia that she was the better cop and he has no ego problems with that. And so he focuses on his paintings and it makes it onto a stamp. I love them so much. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and it's like he, he wanted to stay home anyway. He, well, yeah. he wanted to stay home to make paintings anyway. Like that that was probably his passion. And it's like, well, this gives me an opportunity to work on the thing that I'm truly passionate about anyway. <laughs> exactly. And, and just and how supportive they are of right, each other. Right, you know? absolutely. So, we all want a relationship a- like that. Yes, I think there's a lot in their few little bit limited scenes together and dialogue, but all right. So another little bit of trivia. I love this one, too. The snowplow that drives past the motel at the end of the film was not part of the script. Signs in the area warned motorists not to drive through due to filming, but a state employee ignored them <laughs> as a former state employee. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> Like, yeah, I don't care about your fancy Hollywood uh, thing over here. (laughs) I got a job to do. I got 14 more rural routes to hit. I cannot wait all day. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) The actors used a book called How to Talk Talk Minnesotan to help them with their accents, which I thought was crazy. (laughs) I love that. I love that they just, oh, the work that they put into the accent. I much appreciated. Right. William H. Macy begged the directors for the role of Jerry Lindegard. He did two readings for the part and became convinced he was the best man for the role. When the Coens, Joel and Ethel, Ethel? Ethan, <laughs> didn't get back to him, he flew to New York, where they were starting production, and said, I'm very, very worried that you are going to screw up this movie by giving this role to somebody else. It's my role, and I'll shoot your dogs if you don't give it to me. He was joking, of course. So this, he was born to play this role. He, this, this is like the William H. Macy role. Yeah, he definitely brought his A game. And he really wanted this role. He spent his own money to buy an airline ticket to go out to where they are. He was like, I'm very worried that you're going to give this part to somebody else. So this is awesome. That was pretty awesome. I feel like he was channeling the character that he felt that he was made for. (laughs) I think a little bit, yeah. When when Carl Showalter, Steve Buscemi character, calls Larry London guard William H. Macy for the deal to be done, he tells him, 30 minutes and we'll wrap this up. From that moment, the film's running time left is exactly 30 minutes. That's pretty brilliant. That's brilliant editing on their part. I love it when movies do that, when there's like they mention a time and then it's exactly that amount of time. I, it just it's so fun. You know what that reminds me of? They don't hmm. mention a time. You kind of have to know it when, by studying the movie. But from dusk till dawn is like that. 
So oh, yeah. they're, they're really two completely different movies. You have the first half of the movie, which is a crime drama, and exactly the halfway point is switches from a crime drama to a horror story. So, yeah, that, it's amazing when, when you can do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's see. Um, William H. Macy stated in an, in an interview that despite evidence to the contrary, he did hardly any ad-libbing at all. Most of the characters' stuttering mannerisms were written in the script exactly the way he does them in the film. Uh, and I just think that just goes to show the brilliant writing uh, and creating this character from the Coen brothers. Right, right. I, I imagine, like, when they write a script, they're just writing out words and they're just going to let the actors interpret it whichever way. But, yeah, they were very meticulous in how they wanted this movie to go. So that mm-hmm. that's... That's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's it's amazing when you can get down into details like that. Absolutely. Yeah. The scene where the couple tries to make a deal with Jerry is based on Ethan Cohen's real life encounter with a car salesman. It's almost a verbatim transcript of my experience. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you called me down here and you said the deal was done. And now yeah. you're now you're a liar, right? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that so much because I feel like anyone that's gone through a dealership or anything has knows exactly what that is like, whether it's the undercoating sealant, which, come on, you're in the Midwest, you need it because the salt is going to rust out the bottom of your vehicle. It sounds like a bunch of crap, but unless you are meticulous about washing the underbelly of your vehicle, as soon as the snow and salt start to disappear, disappear, you're going to need it. Sorry, that's my Midwest rant. <laughs> Vehicle maintenance. <laughs> but that's that's under I think the clear coat was for the paint though. So it's not oh, something was it? that they, okay. right. That's not something that you would put under your car. So you it, you're gonna get in trouble with the salt anyway. It's not something <laughs> right. that you can help. So he was trying to he was trying to get them to buy the covering on the paint. And so finally he said, Well, okay, I'll take two two hundred dollars off. Gotcha. <laughs> no, he took a hundred dollars was... off. Cause they already but... put the the paint, the clear coat on the cars. They yep. it comes with the clear coat. So it's not like they could, <laughs> you know, they're, so they're not now they're take... trying to sell something that's already on the car, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the way he tells the next prospective buyer, like, oh yeah, you don't need that. And just you're like, dude, you are you're just full of it. You'll just tell anybody anything. Well, the guy was very assertive. Like, he didn't feel confident that he could sell this particular guy on the clear coat. Because the guy mm-hmm. very much said, I don't need no clear coat. And the guy said, oh, yeah, I guess you don't need. Right? He immediately <laughs> folds. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jerry. <laughs> right. So the scene where the couple. Oh, I, did I read that? Yeah, I, I read that. It, it's your turn. My bad. Yeah, that's Okay. <laughs> Uh, the Coens have described Minnesota as Siberia with family restaurants. <laughs> I love that. Seems about right. Yeah, it, it's it's white up there. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I love a good family restaurant as a personal note. Right, so right, We right. hit them up wherever we go. <laughs> right. I, I've been to a couple of family restaurants up there. So, yeah, it, they're they're pretty nice. When working on her Minnesota accent for the film, Frances McDormand worked with Larissa... Cocker not. Uh, she played hooker number one. McDormand referred to her accent and mannerisms as Minnesota nice. Because of course they are. Of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know. Right. <laughs> Frances McDormand, looking around for a role as a killer or prostitute, was hesitant to play a pregnant cop. When I, quote, when I started working on it, I realized it was one of the best gifts that I've ever been given. Well, and that's... in turn, 
she gave us an amazing gift. Absolutely. But what trips me out is that she was looking for a killer or a prostitute. So I was like, wow, that's... <laughs> a far cry. <laughs> right, right, right. A, a far cry from an unassuming police chief. Yep. Approaching Bernard from the south, you see a statue of Paul Bunyan with a sign reading, Welcome to Bernard. In reality, Bernard has no such statue. Paul Bunyan Amusement Park, located just outside of Bernard, had a huge statue of Bunyan and Babe, the Blue Blue Ox. The park is now at this old farm between Bernard and Garrison. So it's somewhere in the area, but it's not at the entrance of Bernard as depicted in the movie. Mm-mm. And one of the places, uh, I think one of the like family restaurants uh, up in the Dells has a Paul Bunyan and Babe Blue Ox. So right. I, I don't know that it's maybe as big as the one that was depicted in the movie, but he is definitely a symbol that you can kind of see throughout the Midwest, I think. so. Right. <laughs> All right. Let's see. I'm going to try real hard with the character name now. Uh, Gayer. Grimsrud, played by Peter Stormar, Stormare, has 18 lines of dialogue in the entire movie and never says more than a complete sentence at one time. By comparison, Carl Showalter, played by Steve Buscemi, has over 150 lines of dialogue. Yes. And Steve Buscemi <laughs> is the type of person that can deliver those lines. Absolutely. I was I was watching like the documentary on the DVD, kind of like the making of and the Coen brothers were saying that, you know, they definitely pictured, you know, this character to be just kind of that motor mouth type always talking. And they thought Steve was perfect for it. And they're like, in real life, he is not like that at all. Ah. So it's just because he does it so well that you kind of get like, oh, you're just an exaggerated version or something, you know, of, of a little bit of yourself in there. But no, and then even in the documentary, he is definitely not Carl in the way that he was speaking and delivering during the little interview bit. So I love that man. He can do it all. Right. Like when he's in his, he's basically a character actor. He plays similar characters. Out. Like I, when I, with Carl, I see him as the same character as Armageddon. He's, he seems like the same guy. <laughs> and he, he talks the same way. It's like just, just fast, just there's rapid fire delivery with his, uh, with his speech. And and yeah. mannerism. So yeah, he's he's a joy to watch. Yes. <laughs> William H. Macy was dueling between the takes and the Coens decided to use it for the scene. So that's that's pretty cute. <laughs> I thought so too. They just caught him one day and they're like, Oh yeah, let's get that in there. And right. I think it just works so well, especially the scene that they used it in, because at this point, you know, Jerry's he's under a lot of a lot more pressure and so it it does not surprise me that he would be distracted to the point of just doodling on his notepad or something so i loved it just these little things right right even though the movie takes place mostly in brainerd minnesota the cohen brothers decided to call it fargo which is in north dakota just because they liked the sound of it for a title better than brainerd which was quote not cool enough Uh, fargo is where jerry lundegaard meets the two hoods he hires to kidnap his wife and they have a whole TV show called Fargo based in the same universe as this movie, but they're not in Fargo. I guess they're in Bernard the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> I've never seen I've never seen the TV show, but now now I'm interested. Either. Me too. I did read that uh right away cuz even though it's it doesn't feature any of these characters, I had read that um 
they do explain kind of, I think real quick, maybe in, in, in a passing conversation or something, what happened to that money that the money was found. Oh, or okay. So I'm like, right. well, now I have to watch it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Frances McDormand wore a pregnancy pillow filled with birdseed to simulate her pregnant belly. She says that she didn't deliberately try to move in a pregnant quote manner. It simply came as a natural response to keeping the extra weight balanced. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's like when trying just just how it turned out. And, you know, I thought for the longest time she was pregnant during filming. And I think it, a lot of that was the movement. So I think I think it's a very interesting choice to have filled the the pillow pregnant, the pregnancy pillow with the bird seed to kind of give it a little bit more of that realism versus just a poofy pillow. So right, right. brilliant. It works amazingly. Filming began in, on January 22nd, 1995 when the region was experiencing its second warmest winter in a hundred years. Filming of outdoor scenes had to be moved all over Minnesota, North Dakota and Canada. And much of the snow was artificial. Wow, they had a, <laughs> global warming was really uh, impactful on trying to make this movie. Yep. <laughs> like, Where's the snow? It's so hard. Dang it. Yep. Because it would Even have been that... so much cheaper if we filmed it like 10 years ago. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and this movie is timeless. They could have made this movie almost any time period up until Absolutely. today. Yep. I I agree. The witch hipper used in the movie is now on display at the Fargo Moorhead Visitor Center. <laughs> I love it so much. They're displaying a wood chipper. Right, it's right. a wood it's like putting an excavator on display. <laughs> right, right. You you remember this machine? <laughs> oh, if I it, love it. If it's still painted with the fake blood, then it would be worth it. But Absolutely. if it's just like a yeah, pristine condition wood chipper, I don't I don't know. It's like, yeah, sure, but it's used it was used in a movie, right? <laughs> there better be a prosthetic foot with the socks sticking right, up. Right, <laughs> right, right. That would make it worth it. Absolutely. None of the movie scenes, either exterior or interior, were actually filmed in Fargo. The bar exterior shown at the beginning of the movie is located in northeast Minneapolis. So Wow. That that that's kind of a shocker and a shame. But yeah. <laughs> Francis McDormand, played by Marge Gunderson, and director Joel Cohen have been married since April 1st, 1984, and they have one child together. So it's nepotism all over again. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm surprised she's not in every single Cohen Brothers project. Yeah. But I also feel like Frances is very kind of selective also. And that it's just because it's her husband's movie, if it, if the role isn't right for... And I feel like the Coens are also very selective and not just going to, you know, toss Frances in there just because. Like, unless the role is for her. Because I guess they said that they... I, I'm not sure how far back prior to them making Fargo, but they already had Frances in mind for that role. Right, right. It's, it's not so. like uh, Sam Ramby and when he's making movies. Where's Bruce? Somebody get Bruce <laughs> right, Campbell exactly. on the phone. I can't. I, I can't do this movie without Bruce Campbell. Or uh, um, I forgot his name. Um, the man that directed Guardians of the Galaxy. His brother James was, Gunn. Yeah, James Gunn. James and Sean Gunn. Right. Yeah. And Sean yep. Gunn is almost every James Gunn movie. But that's mm-hmm. cute because it's not like Sean Gunn is in a major part. There's always a minor role, and it, it's just cute that he's he's always 
it's just a cute thing to do. Or Ron Howard and Clint Howard. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> right. Aww, they, they, they like each other. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, three weeks into shooting, Joe Cohen and Ethan Cohen revealed to their cast and crew that this was not, in fact, based on the true story. <laughs> Oh, I, I skipped over you. I'm sorry. Uh, That's but all right. yeah, it's I yeah, I found out much later on that it wasn't real and I'm shocked and surprised. It's like, how is this not a true story? Why would you lie to me? <laughs> <laughs> I trusted you, Cohen Brothers. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I I, I, just... I expected like some of the events to be embellished or you know artistic license or whatever but now this the whole thing is is false (laughs) yeah and and i love that i loved how they packaged it and marketed it and everything and then after the movie had come out and came out to rave reviews then it was kind of quote discovered that None of it, that it wasn't right, based right, on a right, true right. story. <laughs> so then the Coen brothers, they sent like your classic apology letter to like, I think they said the Washington Post or or one of the major paper publications and did the classic like, we're, we're going to launch a full investigation to find out how this happened. We're so sorry. You can, we can promise nothing but, you know, excellent storytelling and in truth or whatnot. I mean, for 1996 and they came out with some (laughs) late two (laughs) thousands apology type crap. I was was like, I love you guys. You guys are brilliant. Never change. They knew the whole time that it wasn't real. They knew the whole time. That they just sat down and wrote the story, but I think they thought it was from a marketing standpoint, it would have been brilliant. It was, uh, what was, what's the, the idiom? I can't remember exactly what it is. It's like, take something and apologize later. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, It's, what is it? It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Yes. Is it that the one you're thinking of? Yeah, okay. that's what I was thinking of, and that's what they did. <laughs> totally. And I love that because the whole kind of idea behind that is, Getting the having seeing if the audience could suspend their disbelief long enough to really buy all the events that have happened, and I just think that is a great like uh, like social experiment in of itself. Right. Let's tell this little lie and see how it affects the movie watching process. <laughs> right. I think it's. I thought it was brilliant. They got me with Fargo. I got got with Blair Witch Witch Project yes, as well. They did the same thing with Blair Witch Project. That was brilliant. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I missed it though. I, I totally missed it. By the time um well, I, I I didn't go and see it right away. And so, you know, I found out, you know, it, it was said that, you know, it was a movie after all. It wasn't found it wasn't actual found footage. And so well, like now I missed the 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 impact of the movie, right? So now, now I don't want to watch it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I understand because sometimes when those moments are gone, they're gone and you Try as you might, you can't replicate right, them. Right, right. So. You can't get that back. Nope. The first time I watched the Blair Witch Project, it was uh, like a, quote, bootleg VHS copy. And I don't know if that was maybe part of marketing <laughs> as well. A buddy came over with it, and we watched it, and it was really grainy and everything. And it looked like like an illegal copy of this like very forbidden movie. Right. And uh, it was, it was kind of spooky, but... The way it, I was not impressed with the when, with the ending shot. <laughs> I was like, "What is happening? This is dumb." I was very annoyed by the end. Right, right. But I liked the whole concept of like, "Oh my god, the witch in the woods." Uh, Frances McDormand accidentally left her pregnancy suit in her trailer one night, 
The silicone breasts in the suit froze and one of them exploded the next day on set. I hope to God she wasn't wearing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think it was like explode like blam, more like explode Blue. like, you know, it was like puffed out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> you can imagine the profanities that happened when that when her fake breast exploded. Absolutely. <laughs> All the jokes, they pretty much write themselves. Right, 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 right. Uh, Kristen Rudrud, uh, who played kidnapping victim Jean Lundegaard, was actually born in Fargo, North Dakota. Ah, there's our Fargo connection. Yep. After about 30 minutes into the film when Gar Grims- Grimswood, Grimswood, see, we're, we've been pronouncing this name the entire podcast, <laughs> and we're still having problems. Yep. Gary Grimswood chases after the eyewitnesses in the car. He says something in Swedish, which (laughs) means, uh, and I'm going to swear, there's an E on the podcast. We all, I put it on every podcast, even on the podcast where I don't swear. But this is a particularly vile uh, cursing term for, um, for American audiences. American audiences have a particular problem with this term. But I've been watching The Boys, and now it's one of my favorite things to say. I don't say it out loud to people. I'm I'm in my house or in my car. This is what I yell to other drivers when they do something dumb, right? But uh, so he says something in Swedish that means fucking cunt. The actor who portrays Gare, Peter Stolmeyer, is Swedish. So, yeah, it came out naturally for him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. I apologize for, to the listeners who are very offended by that particular term, but uh, I'm going to confess that I have a ball saying it. <laughs> I, I am one that, I, I am a female that has zero problems with the C word. Um, <laughs> I'll just censor myself just so we don't go overboard for right, your listeners. Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> um, I love it. And I, I just I find it so interesting, the differences in its use between here and other countries where it's used as a term of like affection and for your friends. Like I think like in Australia and stuff and you don't actually call your mate your mate. Um, you call them the C word, but you refer to maybe an acquaintance as a mate or something. I had a friend live in Australia, so she fills me in on all these little tidbits on just kind of these differences and stuff. And I love it. I think it's language is very interesting. I think it's kind of fascinating, especially with some, some swears. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause even like, even in England, they say it is not as serious a word as it is over here in the U S for some, somehow it, it, it was really bad in the U S <laughs> all the pearl clutching that goes along right, with right. its use. Oh right. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, William H. Macy came up with the idea to have Jerry rehearse what he's going to say on the phone to Wade Harv Presnell. Very interesting. Yes, that that was an, that was a great choice. He he did it. That's one of the best parts of the movie. He, he did a service to this movie when he did that because that was really so did. creepy when him doing that. It's <laughs> like, what are you doing, man? It was like, Ugh. It, it's it's slimy. Yeah, absolutely. And but I it, there's also a bit of that humor, that dark humor in it as well. And it's just it's such a such an amazing choice. I love it. Right. And we had touched on this earlier. And mm-hmm. every scene that they have together, Marge and Norm are either lying in bed or eating. Right. Just normal. Right. Just normal. <laughs> and the oh. very first time you see them, 
she they're lying in bed and then they get up to eat, right? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. It's like establishing what you're going to see throughout the entire movie. Yep. And then there's the one scene where he's kind of, they're in bed and he's dozed off and she's still watching TV, but you kind of get the feeling that she's still thinking about the case or whatever. But there's a bag of chips in bed. So they were also snacking in bed, which I don't I don't have a problem with except for the crumbs. Yeah. So my, that was where my mind instantly went was like, oh, crumbs. <laughs> <laughs> you just wipe on the floor and vacuum up in the morning. Exactly. <laughs> Normal take care of that after he's made Margie's breakfast. Right, right, right. <laughs> that that's exactly right. Uh, J. Todd Anderson, a storyboard artist who regularly works on the Cohen brothers, works with the Cohen brothers, not on them, that's weird, also plays one of the murder victims, but is credited as a symbol uh in, in the credits similar to the symbol Prince used at the time. This may be a reference to the fact that Prince, like the Coen brothers, was born in Minnesota. Yes, that's pretty awesome. It I puts, love it. I didn't even pay attention to the credits, but I thought it was a really nice piece of trivia. What is also nice, I'm glad that you said that he was credited as a symbol instead of trying to read it. Because <laughs> I looked exactly at it and I was like, I was no. going to say it, yeah. <laughs> so um, in, um, for those of you listening, it's a symbol that looks very much like Prince's symbol. If you're familiar with Prince, and for a while he refused to use his name, and he went by a symbol that was he used that symbol as uh, a um as a moniker when when you uh, as he he was this is how he was credited on music videos. This is how he was credited on his album that he used that symbol. And you can you can type out Prince's symbol in a similar way, but um in this particular instance it's a capital O. Um, uh, parentheses, a beginning parentheses, a plus sign, and a greater than symbol, and and that's how he's credited, I guess, in homage to Prince. So, and I think at the time Prince was going by that symbol. And if you want to see the symbol, you can look on. Prince had a guitar that was shaped like the symbol, right, for a little while, <laughs> and and he had the he had the word slave written on his cheek. So he was he was going hardcore against the record company at that time. <laughs> mm-hmm. God. Oh, God, I miss that man. Right. So brilliant. So that is it for the um for the trivia. I hope you enjoyed that. And now we're going to go to the critics. We're, we're going to pause for like three or four seconds and we're going to see what the critics thought. And we're back. So now we're going to see what what the critics thought about this movie. The critics gave it at Rotten Tomatoes. They gave it a 94%. Audience scores was 93%. And on IMDb reviews, one of the highest reviews I've seen on that site is 8 out of 10. And the IMDb IMDb reviews tend to be lower because people are afraid to actually give a 10 out of 10 for the movies that they like. (laughs) They're saving it for something special. So I think a lot of people gave this movie a 10 on that site. And and it's well-deserved, which at the same time means that it's hard to find critics that didn't like the movie. And when you do find um, critical reviews that, that gave it like a rotten tomato, they're dumb. They're 
dumb comments. It's like what you're saying doesn't make any sense. It's like that's not what the movie is about. You're just hating on it just to be hating on it. Um, mm-hmm. So so let's get started. So Alan Mason from Positive, he wrote, The spirit of comedy counterbalances the violence of the gangster film and trumps it hands down. Kind ordinariness, not, not a word I'm familiar with, and the wordy story clashed victoriously with the irony of fate that lies in wait for enterprising hearts. So yeah, it, it, that's a... That's a pretty um, intellectual way of describing this movie. I, I kind of like mm-hmm. that. And then we have Adam's Mar- Adam Mars James from The Independent UK, who wrote, In effect, the Coens have written an action film that disregards the basic principles of the genre. That character is expressed in action. Which is kind of a dumb thing to say, since this is not an action movie. <laughs> yeah. what, what was he thinking? Yeah, just because you have, like, police officers and you have crime doesn't necessarily mean that it's an action movie was Columbo an action TV series was uh what's her name um Angela Lansbury and murder she wrote was she in an action series no these aren't these are detective shows these aren't action movies come on calm mm-hmm. down watch exactly. a different yeah watch the movie that you're supposed to be watching don't you <laughs> what you're doing is you're projecting uh Sarah Brinks uh gone with the twins says the Cohen's dialogue is snappy and fun and they know how to ride the line between serious and funny. Their tendency towards moments of horrific violence doesn't always work for me, but that is one of their signatures and I can usually get past it. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. They, it was some stark violence too. They didn't actually show anything, but the way it kind of comes up, like the only thing that you really see is when, um, what's his name? Hold on, let me, let me get his name real quick. Cause I, I don't want to, I don't want to say, well, that guy, because then it would sound weird <laughs> and insensitive. So when Shep Proudfoot uh, was Steve Reeves, uh, that character, when when he comes and he beats up Steve Buscemi, like that, that was probably the most violent that you actually saw. And then like with the shots, he didn't actually. Oh, yeah. That, that when the police officer got shot, that was pretty harsh, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like the one with the police officer is kind of. It, it's right there. It's close up. It's like right in Steve and in, in Carl's like face and everything. And so it's very jarring in that sense. Yes. But I think the scene with Carl and Shep is almost harder to watch because of just the colossal ass whooping that Shep lays on him. Right, right, and right. Then, and, and the belt, the belting. Yeah, that one yeah. was, that was really, I, I was kind of. A little surprised at myself at how hard that was for me to watch now right. and never really like thinking too much about it in the past. So I admit I've gotten soft in my old age and being coming a mom and everything. <laughs> and so I just, maybe it's one of those things, but I was like, Oh, that's, that's not good. None of that is right, good. I right, don't like right. this. <laughs> so yeah, that, that was, uh, that, that, that was impactful. And then there was another one where they didn't actually show it, but when, um, when Steve gets in a fight with uh, Steve, uh, not Steve. Well, what is his name? I, I, I didn't forgot. When the two criminals, when when they have a dispute over how they were going to divide up the money, right? Mm. So that would be uh, Carl and Gare. So mm-hmm. you know, like Gare is just sitting there, I guess, watching TV and eating something, and I don't know, wearing something weird, like it, it like it was like long johns or something. Yeah. And then like they have an argument and. 
Garrett's not really in, engaged in the argument. He just says what he wants and he's done. Like he's done talking. He's he's he doesn't want to talk to you anymore. And Steve is like, you know, I'm going to take the car, blah, 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 whatever. And then he walks out and then Garrett just haunts him like with the axe, like just comes up behind him with the axe. And you, you don't see the strike, but it's like you... <laughs> It's like the scene cuts off before you see the strike with it. You feel it. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my God, no. <laughs> well, and just the way that scene is shot with uh, Garrett coming out of the house and everything, all of a sudden, he's got his his winter cap on yeah. and the axe and yeah, his his long john. So there's a, a bit of ridiculousness in the visual itself, but it's also terrifying because... Carl doesn't see it right away. And yeah, Gar comes out and just, yeah, hunts him down those few feet or whatever with the axe. So it's like visually funny, but also scary. And yeah, just, but we don't see everything. Like we don't see when he shoots the passenger in the flipped vehicle. Right, right, right. So it's their use of violence, I think, is very interesting where they don't always have to show us everything for it to be so impactful. That's and exactly I think right. a lot of it is very still very impactful. Right, right. That is exactly right. All right. And the last one is Dave Kerr from New York Daily News writes, wrote, the camera angles to the set design, everything is calculated to make the viewer feel superior to the cloddish, geeky characters on display. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I guess I didn't really feel that way. I, mean, I think I thought they were ordinary to the point where you felt like I could do that, right? And I think that's or I could do that better. But it was supposed to show the ineptitude of some of the characters, especially the criminal characters, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think that's where that comes from. But everybody else, like they're just doing their regular stuff, and people aren't right. used this. People aren't used to seeing regular on in a movie. They're used to seeing something that's catered to be more fantastical, even in a, a regular movie. It people are acting a little bit more competent than they do in real life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but yeah, that that's what I mean when, when they're kind of, this was like what from one of the negative reviews and I was like, it, it seemed kind of forced. It seemed to say something like that to me anyway. <laughs> well, I could see that applying maybe towards Jerry specifically, but yeah. not Marge. Right. You know, Marge isn't cloddish or geeky. So I wonder if this little blurb is, if maybe the reviewer Dave was kind of maybe subconsciously talking about that unassuming Midwest accent and making them cloddish and thinking them of as cloddish or or geeky. So I just mean, yeah, I think when you're kind of watching Jerry, you're not supposed to think like I could have planned this better. Right. I could have done this better. But maybe just a little bit because he's so <laughs> bad at it. He right. is so bad at right. it. So but I mean, definitely not with like Marge or anything, because she's amazing. Right. Right. Wow. She is she like I said, she's Columbo. She her mannerisms forces you to underestimate her and that's how she yes. and she knows this. And that's yes. how she gets like like she uses that against Jerry, right? Yep. <laughs> and you can see when she switches, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that Midwest passive aggression, the cousin right. to the Midwest nice. So Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's it for what the critics thought. Finally, Fargo is at this recording available for purchase at your favorite streaming service, or it might be available at your local library. There you go. (laughs) That's it for today. Please join us next week where we will watch an early classic starring Michael Keaton, Johnny Dangerously. Follow us on Twitter or TikTok at Backlick Cinema or Facebook 
or Instagram at Backlick Cinema Podcast for updates. Don't forget that you can contact us with any questions or comments or suggestions at fanmail at backlickcinema.com. And do you have any additional... Once again, I forget to ask you for your plugs at the beginning of the show. So do you have... So give us your plugs at the end of the show. Where can people find you? Where can our listeners find your podcast? Where can they find you on social media? Give us the deets. Well, I am the most active on over there on the Twitters. Uh, you can find me at Streaming Bubble. And then you can follow on Facebook and Instagram as My Streaming Bubble. I'm not quite as active there. I'm trying to get a little bit better. Um, and then you can listen to the podcast. We're on a podcast player near you. I'm available on almost all of them, with the exception of one. But that's okay. That's another It's another podcast. Right, right, right. <laughs> But yeah, my streaming bubble. Right. Awesome. One last time, if you like the show, then please help us grow. To do this, you can subscribe on the show or subscribe to the show. Rate us or write a review on Spotify, Podchaser.com, or Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And I know you've enjoyed our guest, Jen. So please listen to my streaming bubble wherever you listen to podcasts. Believe me, it matters. Be safe. Share a movie from yesteryear with your family. Hug your loved ones. And if you're going to be anything, be outstanding.